Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. So I'm going to start a new series. Everybody's been wondering if I was going to keep going on David. I kind of warned you that I would probably come back to David next summer again, and that is what I'm going to do. Um, I figured as I was praying, there was, there's a few different things I want to get to uh, this fall that I really feel that God is saying, well, I talked about joyful and generous and fearless last week that I really feel God's pressing me on. And so as I was praying about that, I said, Lord, what, what about our, my first message series as, as lead pastor? I, I just feel like it's an, an important moment and it's an important season in our church. And so, and so as I was praying, I felt like he said, uh, there's nothing better than to start it off with a series on Jesus. And uh, I know technically, I know someone asked, aren't all your series about Jesus? Well, yes, technically, yes, okay? Um, but to explicitly be about Jesus, I want to study the life of Jesus for sure this fall and, and into winter. And, and how I'm going to do it is, and, and I think, because it's going to draw out some of those things. I think the joyful, generous, and fearless really comes out of who Jesus is. That's what I really believe. And we're going to see a lot of that in his character as we go through the series. So I'm going to work my way through the book of Luke. And, uh, and that is, it's going to be a long series, okay? So the book of Luke is a big book. It will not be years long, I promise you that. Um, I'm not going to work, uh, you know, a year and a half ago, I went, we went through the book of Romans. I worked through, uh, you know, most of the verses in Romans. I'm not going to do that in Luke. I want a little bit more freedom. I'm going to start in Luke chapter 4 because I don't want to do the Christmas story now in, at the end of September. And uh, so we're going to start in Luke chapter 4. Uh, but we're going to work our way. Basically, how I'm viewing it is kind of a chapter a week. And then, of course, I won't get into nearly everything. There is just so much stuff when you get into Jesus' life. I mean, you could just spend uh, whole messages on this verse or that verse or this parable or that parable. But kind of I want to go a little bit quicker through the book of Luke. We'll get a bit of an overview and be able to just stop wherever I want. And, of course, I reserve the right to change that at any point. Um, but So you can try to hold me to that, but it won't work anyway. Uh, Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read you the first 13 verses here. And it's the temptation of Jesus. Famous story. And uh, lots of these uh, are famous stories, but that's why they're in the, in the Word of God and we need them. And, uh, and then I'll, we'll pray and we'll get into this. But I'll just read you the 13 verses here and you can follow along there on the screens. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. By the way, wouldn't that be a great ending if every time the devil came to tempt you, he had to give up finally and depart until another opportune time? Okay, that's just, I just love that, that Jesus overcomes the devil here. Let's pray. I just love Jesus so much. I want us to fall in love with him and get, him to, get to know him better during this series. So bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Jesus, we love you. We love you and we want to love you more. Thank you for accepting the weak love that we give you. Thank you for pursuing us even when we're not pursuing you. Thank you that you overcame the devil. 
And Lord Jesus, we want to fall more in love with you this morning and throughout this series. This is a real thing. We don't want to play church. We want to fall in love with you. And if we fall in love with you, everything else is going to fall, uh, fall into place. We're going to become contagious. We're going to spread your word. And many are going to come to know you. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help me as I, as I preach this message. Help the points to get across in the way that you want to get them across and the tone that you want to get them across. In your precious name we pray. Amen. All right, amen. If we go back to verses 1 and 2... And uh, I want to show you some parallels here that are really important. No doubt some of you have seen some of this before, and that's okay. Uh, again, it's a famous passage. Um, but you have to understand before we start this off that this is not a random event. It's not just random, like, why did Jesus suddenly go into the wilderness after his baptism before he starts ministering? Why does he go into the wilderness and fast? Like, why the wilderness? Why the fasting? And why is it for 40 days? Like, is this just a good idea? Like, Jesus just thought, well, this is a good idea. Maybe everybody, before they go, go into ministry, should go off into the wilderness uh, somewhere, you know, into the sandy lands and fast for 40 days uh, before they start their ministry. Like, why did Jesus do this? Right? And the thing you have to understand is any, any early uh, Jewish Christian reading or hearing this story would automatically have known what was going on because this is not a random story. It's not just... Jesus just figured this was a nice idea. All of this is deeply rooted in the Old Testament and the story of the Exodus and of Israel, okay? So there's, there's no accident here. And again, any early Christian would have known this immediately, the Jewish people in particular, because they were so steeped in the stories of the Exodus. But any Jewish Christian immediately would have picked up on the fact he goes in the wilderness 40 days and the children of Israel went into the wilderness for 40 years, Okay, and so the whole story is layered with these parallels. Let me just show you uh, three or four here. Uh, first of all, it's interesting that even in the book of Exodus, it's interesting in the very book where Israel gets led into the wilderness, God calls Israel his firstborn son. So we see this. I'll just show you a quick couple of passages here just to start the message off. Uh, Exodus 4.22, uh, God says to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So in the book of Exodus, before God leads them out in the wilderness, he calls them his son. In the book of Luke, God leads his son, his only begotten son, Jesus, into the wilderness as well, right? So he leads his son, he leads his son. None of this is an accident. Uh, in both cases, the purpose of being led into the wilderness was to be tested. We see that in Luke 4, verse 2 up there, for 40 days being tempted by the devil. It was the purpose with tempting and testing in the Greek are the same thing. So the purpose of Jesus going into the wilderness was to be tested, and the purpose of Israel going into the desert was also to be tested. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, we read this, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. So Israel in, the, in Exodus is called God's son, and he leads them into the wilderness to test them for 40 years. And Jesus is God's son in, in uh, the New Testament. He's led into the desert to be tested for 40 days. Uh, the parallels don't end there. And again, we could go on and on and on with many, many, many parallels, but it doesn't end there. In both cases, the first test is hunger. So Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 says this about Israel being tested in the wilderness. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, which is very interesting. Jesus, we're going to come back to that passage later in this message. But the point there is God leads his son Israel into the desert for 40 years to test them with hunger in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. And he does the same to Jesus in the book of Luke. Look at this. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 2. If we put up the rest of the verse, and he ate nothing during those days. So, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So again, uh, it's not a bad idea, of course. And we believe in fasting. January, you know, prayer is our prayer and fasting month every year. 
And, and I love that. Fasting is a great way for us to focus on God. But some people might look at this story and see this as this is what everybody has to do before they go into ministry is do this long fast. And that's not necessarily a bad idea. But the point I'm showing you here today is this is not just some random uh, event. This is not just a thing Jesus made up as a good idea for ministry. This is all meant to parallel something that had happened in the Old Testament. It's, a, it's supposed to parallel, and it is uh, paralleling. And in fact, uh, it's interesting, even when Jesus gives his first response to Satan's temptation, he quotes directly from this Deuteronomy 8 passage where we're seeing all these parallels. And he says to Satan, uh, Jesus answered him, it is written, we're going to come back to this again later in the message, man shall not live by bread alone. And you'll see that very quote there in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, uh, you know, third line from the bottom, man does not live uh, by bread alone. Thank you, Sarah, for underlining that there. That's great. So what is the significance of this? Why all the parallels? Why would Jesus go to the trouble of doing this? Many modern readers wouldn't pick up on it. So why do it? And there's a couple of reasons. I mean, there's probably many reasons, God and his wisdom. But first of all, uh, Jesus is in the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament uh, points us to Jesus. There are explicit prophecies that point us to Jesus, but it goes even deeper than that. The entire Old Testament points us to Jesus. So even in the stories, okay, even in the stories, you know, God sends Israel into the wilderness, and you might think, well, this has nothing to do that much with Jesus. But even the stories of the Old Testament are parallels so that when Jesus came along, everything he did in his life was showing over and over again. It's kind of like, you know, if you, if you take out you know, all of our new Canadian dollar bills, you know, like they got all these security features and there's all kinds of things you can't copy and it goes out down into the details and I don't even know all the different details, but you know, you take a magnifying glass and you look at, they got these pictures on there and if you really look closely at the pictures, you'll see, you know, numbers and letters in there that say things that then make a picture and it's like, cool, how did they do that? It's a similar thing with the Old Testament. You've got these uh, stories. I'm just, that thing's bugging me. And uh, get rid of that for now. But um, um, you got these stories that don't look, you know, on the, you, you, from, a, from a distance. It doesn't look like Jesus is in that story. But you take the magnifying glass, you look, you look down on it, and then here's Jesus living his life in the New Testament. And everything, it's just, it's just pulling it out of the Old Testament, proving this has to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And nobody could copy it. The reason they, they do that with, with our money now is because they don't want it to be copied easily. And it was the same with Jesus. Nobody could copy that. Nobody could have made it up. He lived it out and did it. And there's levels and layers to it that are amazing, which I find incredible. But there's another reason I want to draw our attention to here this morning as to why Jesus would do this. And it's it's amazing to me, there's, a, there's, a, there's certainly an important uh, parallel and lesson here, is, and that is this, where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Okay, and this is a really important part of the gospel message and of why Jesus did this, but God takes Israel out into the wilderness for 40 years, and they fail the test. They fail the test. They grumble, they complain, they mess up again and again, they turn to idols, they're afraid, they don't obey, all these sorts of things. God takes them into the wilderness and tests them for 40 years because, and the fact of the matter is, it's not just Israel, it's all of us, they just represent all of humanity. We all fail the test, isn't that true? When you test the human heart, you put the human heart out in the wilderness and you test it a little bit, you take it out of easy circumstances and you put it into the fires of testing and what comes out of the human heart for all of us is sin and fall short of the glory of God. 
Every one of us. You test us at a deep enough level, and what's going to come out, you're going to find impurity, you're going to find grumbling, you're going to find bitterness, you're going to find all these sorts of things. And so Israel failed to test, but what's amazing to me and so important to the gospel message is God says, now watch what my son does, and he does the same thing. He tested Israel, kind of representative of all humanity. He tested them, and they flopped. They failed. And then God says, now watch my son, and he tests him in the same way, and he sends him out into the wilderness, and he comes out, and what does he do? He overcomes the devil. And the devil, at the end of the story, leaves with his tail between his legs, if he has a tail, his proverbial tail, leaves with his tail between his legs and until a more opportune time. He has to leave. Why? Jesus uh, passed the test. Where we fail, Jesus passed. And what's amazing about the generosity of God is that this is so, that I just, it's so wonderful in the generosity of God. He says, anybody who will give their life to Jesus, I'll take his test score in their stead. Isn't that amazing? So where we have given into the devil, where we have failed the test, God says, I'm going to take his test score instead of yours. He passed, he overcame the devil. I'm going to take his in your stead. If you'll give your life to him. That's amazing. And this is also our hope in the resurrection. You know, one day, how many of you know that one day, if you've given your life to Jesus, we're all going to be resurrected? How many of you know that? That's actually our hope. We're not living for good stuff in this world. We're living because one day Jesus is actually going to come back. Whether you believe in him or not doesn't change the reality of the fact. He's going to come back, and we're going to be resurrected. Those of us who have given our lives to him are going to be resurrected. And here's one of the hopes. When that new body, we're going to have his nature. And the same one who passed the test in the desert with flying colors, and the devil had to go away with his tail between his legs, we're going to have his nature inside of us, and we will never sin again. Now, I love, I love that about Jesus, don't you? And you know, it wasn't just this test. This was an explicit test. He goes out in the wilderness for 40 days to parallel Israel and give us some of these truths. It's amazing. But Jesus' whole life was a life of testing. Okay? He ended his life with with you know, one of the most you know, unbelievable tests you go through. He is, he is betrayed uh, by a disciple. He is abandoned by all his friends, and then he is nailed to a cross. I mean, that's a pretty intense test. And again, what, 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 what came out of the Son of God when he went through that test? What came out of the Son of God when he's put in the desert? And for 40 days, notice the devil doesn't come to him on day one or day two or day three. He waits till he's starving, hungry, and weak. And still the devil can't get anything on him. And then he goes to the cross, and he is scourged, and he is abandoned, and the weight of the world is on his shoulders, and he has nails put through his wrists and through his feet. And what comes out of him on the cross? Does he curse the soldiers out? Is he angry? Is he full of self-pity? None of those things come out. You test the Son of God, he comes out uh, as pure as gold, holy, pure, loving. He forgives from the cross. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And so this is one of the reasons even that I love to follow Jesus. One of the reasons I love to follow Jesus is because he went through testing and he came through as gold and now his spirit resides in me and you. Isn't that true? And so now his spirit resides in you and me, which means that we can go through testing and we can come out and we can sail through it as well and we can pass the test by the power of his spirit. Amen? Amen. Now I've, I've had, this, is, this has made me wonder. I was spending some time a little bit this week uh, wondering and and I, I thought of some observations, and these, I'm going to make some sweeping generali generalizations. You just have to do that sometimes when you're, when you're preaching. But how many of you have ever noticed that there's, uh, you know, there's, there's numbers of people in our culture who don't believe in God, and yet they seem to have relatively nice lives? Have, has any of you ever noticed that? Like, 
they, they don't believe in God. Some of them even hate God, but they're still married, and they're, they're relatively nice people. Like, you talk to them, right? they're nice. As long as, if you look at it from a distance, it looks like they're, 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 like they're leading pretty good lives. I don't know about you, but has that ever bothered any of you? Because I don't know about you, but I need Jesus to make it every day. Like, do I just suck that bad? Or how are they doing it, right? Like, how, how is it that people can live without God and still have some semblance of, of goodness in them? Well, again, and I can't answer for everybody. And things are complicated and there's different things and different whatever. But I'll tell you something, a general observation that I've seen in our culture. And that is that this, that many people, many people are expending immense amounts of energy, immense amount of energy and resources in their life to make sure that their life is perfect, that it's smooth. So if I have enough money to go on lots of trips and relax and not get too stressed out and, and to eat nutritiously and to be healthy and, and work out and all these sorts of things, if I keep my life all in order and if all my focus is on that, as long as the boat isn't rocking too much, I can get through life looking okay, at least from a distance. Isn't that true? But the question today isn't, can your worldview get you through an easy life looking okay? The question is, is your worldview robust enough to take you through a life that has massive waves and storms and take you through it with love and peace and grace and hope? Isn't that true? That's the thing. It's not, can your worldview get you through an easy life? It's not, can you spend your whole life just trying to make sure you have it easy? Try to make sure you don't have lots of stresses. And I even think this is one reason, again, this is just a, a, a massive generalization, and there's many reasons, but I think this is why one reason why some people in our culture increasingly are choosing not to have children in our secular culture. Again, there's lots of reasons. Again, I, I just got to make sure, because there's, you know, there's people here today, some, of, some people can't have kids, and that, that's sad, and we pray for you. And some people, there's also lots of good reasons and legitimate reasons why people choose not to have kids. It's not bad to not have kids, not at all. I'm just making a general, very general observation. Why is it that increasingly in Western society, many people choose not to have kids? I think one reason in some cases is that people have this life. In order for them to make it, you can't jostle the boat. And if there's one thing kids do is it's jostle the boat. Isn't that true? I mean, I, t I talked to a young couple last night. They got three kids. Their youngest one now is three months. The oldest one, I think, was just turned four. And can we all just stop and say a prayer for them, right? Um, they looked a little bit haggard, okay? They're sitting in the cafeteria there, and they are, they're, they're exhausted, and they don't get to sleep ever through a night, and they don't know how they're going to make it. I said, you'll be fine. Just give it a few years. You're going to be fine, right? But you're exhausted. That's not an easy life. That's a giving life. And then as they get older, they're going to stretch you in all kinds of ways. They're going to expose the deepest desires of your heart, and you're going to see many of your values reflected in them. And I think increasingly, not the only reason, and lots of good reasons, we're not going to go out and, and judge people. People don't have to have kids. It's not bad to not have kids. But I'm just making an observation that many people in our culture today, their goal is to have an easy life. And as long as they have an easy life, they can kind of keep it together. But here's the thing. What happens when you get that cancer diagnosis, right? Because I look around this morning, just like I did last night, and I know lots of people here today, lots of people here today who do not have an easy life. And what are you going to do when your marriage starts to really struggle or your business falls apart or stuff starts to happen that's outside of your control? You and I can't make sure that the, that's the sailing's all, all the way going to be smooth. What are you going to do when that comes? I'll tell you what Jesus did. He went through the worst testing ever, and all that came out was peace and love and forgiveness. And that's 
the person I want to be following, and that's the spirit I want to have in me to get me through this life. Amen? Amen. And I was this week uh, meditating on a passage of scripture. Is one I was, I'm, I'm memorizing. I, I just started um, a new passage, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm, I'm going to be working on this next passage, is three, verses 3 to 11. And I just started in verse 3, and I didn't get any further this week because it was just so awesome. So I think I started on this on, on Tuesday, and I was just like, this is an awesome verse. I got to put it in the message. So uh, verse 3, 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says this, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, now you, you, you just got to stop it for just a moment. His divine power, okay? So this same son of God who passed the test and overcame the devil in the wilderness, who went to the cross and instead of cursing out the soldiers who hurt him and the people who betrayed him, he instead forgave and loved in the midst of intense pain. How did you, that same son of God who passed the test, the hardest test, the biggest storms, that same son of God, his spirit and his divine power, if you've given your life to him now, resides in you. Okay? His divine power, his divine power. Now look at this. I just love the rest of this promise. It's absolutely unbelievable. This is life-changing. Okay? His divine power has granted to us all things, not some things, all things. His divine power has granted to us all things. Now look at pertaining to what? Two things. And I love that it's not just one thing. It's that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You might know love, I love that it's not just godliness. Isn't that neat? Like, I mean, it'd be, that would be a pretty cool promise if, he, if his divine power had granted us all things pertaining to godliness. That would already be cool, but it would mean that God wants us to be good people. That's awesome. And he's granted us all divine power to be good people, to have integrity, to have purity. That's already an amazing prop, uh, you know, promise. But it says here that it's not just all things pertaining to godliness. It's all things pertaining to life, which means the stuff that you're going through means your parenting, it means your business, it means the risks you're taking, it means your marriage, your relationships, the things that you're struggling with, your health problems. His divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to your life. For you to pass the test just the way he went through the test and came out as pure gold, his divine power has now granted to each of us, if we've given our life to him, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Is that not amazing? And that's why I want to follow him because... I don't want an easy life. I want a life at the end that is a rewarded life. I, want to go, I don't mind if I have to go through some stress and some storms. Well, I shouldn't say I don't mind. I do mind, Lord. Yeah, just that. Uh, <laughs> I do mind. I, it's not that I want it. But I want to have a kind of a robust life that can weather the storms and get to the end and be rewarded. I want the kind of life where I can get through health trials and marriage trials and, 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 and kid trials, or in some cases, childlessness trials and depression and anxiety trials. Jesus overcame every trial in this life, and because of that, he is with us in all of them. Well, I want to look now at the first. I was going to go through all three temptations, but I just don't have time, so we're just going to do one, and I'm just going to look at the first one. Let's look at the first temptation of, of the devil, and what was that all about? And so if we look at Luke chapter 4, verse 2 again. And uh, he, that's Jesus, ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And so the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, no doubt, again, this is a famous passage. And some of you have probably noticed this before, no doubt. Or you've heard messages on this before. I may even have said it before. I don't know what. But uh, the first thing I want you to notice there is this isn't a sin. Uh, have you ever stopped to reflect on that? This isn't a sin. Command this stone to become bread. I mean, uh, this is not like the devil bringing Jesus a dirty magazine and saying, take a look at this, right? 
This is not the devil going to Jesus and saying, why don't you steal, whatever. Why don't you lie about whatever. It's not a temptation to do something that's actually sinful. It's a temptation to turn a stone into bread. And when you're hungry, if I had the power to turn a stone into bread, I would love to. So have you ever stopped to think, why would the devil try to tempt Jesus to do something that's good? I mean, if the devil came to you at breakfast tomorrow and said, I, I'm tempting you to eat that piece of toast, like, what would you do? I mean, is there something wrong with the toast? Like, should I not be eating this toast, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with me eating a piece of bread. There's, not, there's nothing sinful about this. So why is the devil taking out, you know, time? Why is he wasting energy tempting Jesus to do something that isn't a sin? And the answer is because even if, if the devil can't get you to do something overtly wrong, there's something else he loves to do, one of his strategies, and that is to get you to fill yourself up on things and to rely on things that might be good in and of themselves instead of God. So there's another strategy of, of the devil, which is not just, can I get you to do sinful things, but can I get you to fill yourself up on things or to look for your satisfaction in things or to rely for strength on things that aren't God. Now, in and of itself, that doesn't seem too bad. Why would the devil want us to do that? Okay? And this manifests in, in many ways, by the way. This is one of his common temptations, and all of us give into this. This is why I'm so happy that Jesus passed the test, because he passed the test for us, and now his spirit is in us, so we can also pass the test. But, but there, this takes many forms. All of us have caved to this temptation in some form uh, many times in our lives, for sure. Okay? And so I'll just, and it can take many forms, like I said. One is the same one as with Jesus. It could just be eating, right? Uh, for some people, and I include myself in this, in this group, uh, for some of us, it's, it's eating. Whenever you're discouraged, whenever you're stressed, whenever you're tuckered out, uh, there is nothing to calm the nerves and make you feel good again, like just uh, something with melted cheese and bacon preferably. But if it's just like... Um, if it, you know, just, oh, there's just some of that soul food, right? And it's not wrong to eat. It's absolutely not wrong to eat. Absolutely not. Or to enjoy food. But isn't it true that for some of us, when, when we're down or when there's that hole inside of us or when we're stressed, it's not just eating because we're hungry and our body needs it, but it's actually eating to fill something inside. We don't know how to fill those, thi those inside holes with Jesus, so we fill it with food. That's no different than what's happening here with Jesus in the desert. The only difference being that Jesus actually didn't give in to it. Now, some of you are sitting here today and you're going, well, that's not my problem. In fact, you might look down on people who, who have that problem, but actually you have the same problem just with the opposite form. Uh, your thing that you turn to is not eating. It's not eating. Isn't that true? Because for you, it's a control thing. Whenever you start to feel down about yourself or whatever it is or stressed out about life, um, and there's many reasons for this, but if for you, that feeling of control is what you need, that feeling of power, whatever it is, or self-image, body image, whatever it is. So it's for you, it's by not eating, you feel something inside instead of getting it filled by God. And again, this can take an infinite number of forms. It can be uh, media binging. It can be spending money. All of these things are not bad. It's not bad to eat. It's not bad to not eat. It's not bad to, sometimes, right? But is, is it bad to have self-control about food? Is it bad to say no to that fourth piece of pie? Absolutely not. I wish I could, right? <laughs> I just, well, sometimes I get going, it's like I can't stop, right? But yeah, is it bad? And it's not bad. None of these things are bad of themselves. Is it bad to sit down and watch a movie or to watch a TV show from time to time, enjoy it with the family or enjoy it, whatever, even on your own sometimes? Yeah, are these things bad? No. 
And neither was it bad, would have been bad for Jesus to turn a stone into bread, but the point was, Jesus had been led out in the desert to rely on the Spirit for these 40 days, and he was supposed to rely on God. And the devil said, how about you rely on something good instead of God? Instead of God. And that's one of his temptations. Now, I have to give a long caveat in a point like this, because the antidote to this, see, a lot of people, you hear a point like this, and all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness. Like, now i got to feel guilty Every time I eat, like, Chris preached that message today, am I relying on this food instead of God right now? Like, every time you eat three meals a day, it's like, oh my goodness, right? Or every time I sit down, you know, I want to watch a football game or a movie, every time I sit down to watch something, it's like, I'm finding my joy in something other than Jesus. And you can go to a legalistic place where it's like, I can never do anything. That's not the point of this message. I'm going to show you what the point is in just a moment, but I want to show you a verse. First of all, I could show you many. Titus 1, verse 15, Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is, pu- is pure. So there's a place we can go. To the pure, all things are pure. There is a place we can go where we are so full of Jesus that we can enjoy the things of this life, but we can enjoy them full of our love for the Lord and fully generous to others with our hands wide open, not grasping at anything, in love with Jesus and also enjoying life. There is a place we can go. That is a robust Christianity. There's a legalistic Christianity where people try to fall in love with Jesus by judging others and and condemning themselves where they think the way I'm going to love Jesus and the way I'm going to stand up to the devil's temptation to eat the piece of bread is I'm just going to say no to everything in life. And of course, through the, through the, the centuries, different, you know, in, in, in ages past, sometimes people became monks for this reason. And not that all people who were monks became monks for a wrong reason. Some of them were definitely called by God. And there's different callings on people's lives and there's different personalities and all sorts of stuff. But in some cases, there's this, this idea that the only way to be spiritual is to say no to everything. Because by saying no to everything, that means I'm loving Jesus more. But do you know that's actually not true? You can say no to lots of things and be legalistic and have absolutely no love for Jesus. Let me, uh, let me give you an illustration. It's all where it comes out of, okay? It's one thing if in your joy for Jesus and in your love for him, if you gladly give everything for him. That's amazing. And the Bible has many stories like that. And it is certainly, it is better to give than to receive. Absolutely. But if we do it out of, a, out of a sickly form of Christianity, condemnation, and legalism, it doesn't work. And I'll show you why. Let me give you a, a quick illustration. Imagine you have a husband and a wife who are, are struggling in their marriage. Why are they struggling? Well, they've, they've never really learned to appreciate each other, uh, to listen to each other. Like, how, like the husband doesn't know how to, how to really listen and, and to care and to be tender with each other and to and to, you know, date each other and, and be romantic with each other, all sorts of stuff. So they, they don't do any of those things. They have terrible communication. They treat each other with contempt. And as a result, they have a terrible marriage, okay? And as a result of them having a terrible marriage, let's say the husband, you know, he just, whether he consciously thinks of it or not, he just doesn't want to be home very much. So he starts playing sports four or five nights a week. Now, anybody on the outside looking in, you look at that and you go, well, that's not a healthy sign, okay? This marriage is not doing well. And so that husband needs to stop playing sports four or five nights a week and spend more time with his wife. Okay, well, that would be true if the problem was, if the problem was that they weren't spending enough time together, then that would solve the problem. But in this case, the fact that he's spending four or five nights away from his wife isn't the root of the problem. It's actually the fruit of the problem. The relationship is so bad, that's why he's gone. And if you just go to him and say, the way you're going to grow in love for your wife is just to quit everything you're doing and spend more time with her, that's not going to make the marriage better. It might actually make it worse. They're going to be spending more and more time together, have more and more time to fight. It might end in a murder, right? It could end in some kind of 
uh, assault charge or something uh, that someone's going to get hurt, right? Because they don't like each other. So just cutting out all the sports, now he doesn't feel good about anything in his life and he's more time with this person that they can't stand each other, it's not going to help the marriage. But what if you approach it from a different angle, which is not, you got to quit everything you're doing. Because you actually don't grow in love for someone just by subtraction, you grow in love by addition. So what are you going to do in your life to grow in love? So what if you began to work with this couple to say, okay, let's work on like, uh, how do we talk to each other? How do we appreciate each other? Let's just start by learning to appreciate each other. What are the things that you like about each other? Even if we have to make something up in this first session, right? Let's just make things up and let's get a start, okay? And so you start to teach them to appreciate each other and then to, to look each other in the eyes and listen to each other and, and you, you send them away on a date and they start to do these things. And as they start to do these things, they start to like each other. And as they start to like each other, what's, what's going to happen? Now, you're not going at the guy and just saying, quit everything, and then hopefully your marriage is going to get better. What's happening is you're approaching it from fall in love with your wife. Now, see, the more he falls in love with his wife, there's going to come a point he's going to go, you know, I don't want to be gone from her four or five nights a week. Isn't that true? And he's going to start to cut back. But even there, it's not going to be out of legalism. It's not going to be out of, I have to do this in order to be a good husband. He's going to cut back because he wants to be with her. And, and even there, he's not even going to cut it down to zero probably because they fall in love with each other. She's probably going to start liking some of the things he likes. And the fact that he likes sports, she might say, hey, I want you to keep playing one or two nights a week and I'm going to come and watch some of your games and who knows where that's going to lead. And they're just going to fall in love with each other. And it's going to be amazing, okay? Now let's bring this to our relationship with Jesus. Some Christians think the only way to fall in love with Jesus and the only way to not be worldly is just to not have anything worldly in your life. And that can work for small amounts of time. And it's not that it's bad to fast from things at all or to say no to things. But if your only strategy is to say no, that won't make you love Jesus more. It'll just give you more time to sit around and then fill it with something else again and feel guilty over the fact that you just can't love Jesus, okay? So how do you fall in love with Jesus is you have to get to know him. John 17, 3 says this, and this is eternal life. Now, if you ask a lot of Christians today, what does the, word, the, you know, the, the phrase eternal life means? A lot of Christians would think it means forever, like quantity of time. It's a forever amount of time. And certainly eternal life includes that. But every person is going to live forever. It's just some are going to live forever with Jesus and some are, are going to live forever without so eternal life is much more than a quantity of time. It's a quality of time. It's a quality of life. He's talking about an internal life full of joy and love and peace and satisfaction that is beyond, Paul says, understanding. Imagine if you had a love and a peace and a joy inside that was beyond understanding, a liquid, physical joy inside of you that carried you through every trial and temptation in your life. Wouldn't that be amazing? This is eternal life. You want to know how to have that kind of life? This is eternal life that they know you. Eternal life is not found in, in just getting rid of things, even though as you fall in love with Jesus, there's no question that joy strength inside of you is going to cause you to start to put things in moderation. I don't want to do this so much. And there's going to come times in your life where you have to discipline yourself. I need to do less of this, but because I'm getting to know him. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Okay? And so we go back now to Luke chapter 4. So what the devil is trying to do is he's getting, trying to get Jesus to settle for something less rather than to be relying on the Father. He's trying to get Jesus to rely on food or something good instead. And the fact of the matter in the end is God's not mad at you when you do that. But you are missing out. 
When you're filling up on food and media and these other things instead of Jesus, when you're filling up on sports and hobbies instead of Jesus, because you don't know anything else, actually, your anxiety isn't going away. Have you noticed that? Your empty feeling in life isn't going away. You're just keeping yourself busy enough that you don't notice it. But you're missing out on the greater joy. By settling for the secondary instead of the primary, you're actually missing out. There's eternal life available to you. So the devil comes to you and what he's doing is he's robbing you of eternal life, not in the sense of your salvation, but in terms of the eternal life that's supposed to be yours in Jesus Christ, which is joy and love and peace. He's robbing you of that by getting you to settle for the secondary instead of the primary. But again, Jesus passed the test. Aren't you glad? And his divine power now lives in you and us. So what did he say to the temptation? Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, okay? So he says, I don't need that to be alive. Now, interesting thing here is Jesus ends the quote there. So he just implies the ending. Well, what is he, what, what is he filled with? I'm, I'm, I don't need bread to be filled. So then Jesus, what are you filled with? Well, if we go back to Deuteronomy 8.3, which is where he's quoting from, we can see the rest, what you can be full of. I don't, I don't need these secondary things to be filled because I'm already filled with something better. What is that better thing? Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. You can see it there. Man does not live by bread alone, but what does he live by? Man does not live by bread alone, but what does he live by? Man does not live by media alone. Man does not live by hobbies alone. Man does not live by work alone. He does not live by all these things. What does he live by? But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. True life comes when the creator of the universe is speaking into your life and you have a relationship with him that's actually alive and personable and he's talking to you and he's affirming you and he's loving you. And when, when you have that kind of a relationship with him that is active and fresh, it's not something that just he did to you six months ago or a month ago or a year ago, but it's active and fresh and it's day by day, that will fill you up. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's what, that's what the Bible says. That's not what... That's not just something that Pastor Ray teaches or that I teach. That's, that's what the Bible says. Man lives by every word. Now, again, this is not physical life. Lots of people in this world live and they don't have the word of the Lord inside of them. So it's not physical life. For physical life, you need bread and water. But again, we're talking about joy and peace and satisfaction in life. Well, the problem is then, well, why do so many Christians not, not experience eternal life? And certainly the Bible has to have something to do with this too, right? Because if every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord is life, this is the word of God. This is the primary source of God's words for us today. Why is it that if this is the source of life, like on the one hand, we nod at this verse, but how many of us have read the Bible many times, some of you for years, and you read it and it is so dry and so boring, and then at the end you fall asleep and you're like, I got to have some media to get that buzz. So why is it that we experience that? How can Jesus say, how can the word of God say, man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God, but we don't experience life? And I'll tell you one of the reasons. Okay, and obviously it's more complicated than just, but I'll tell you one of the reasons uh, why it's dry to us when we read this. It's because life does not come just by reading words on the page, even if those words are in the Bible. Life does not come just by reading words on the page. It's more than just reading the words. And Jesus himself affirms this. John chapter 5, 39 to 40, the Pharisees knew the Bible too, didn't they? So on the one hand, Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 says, life comes from every word that comes from the mouth of the God. And probably even based on that passage, the Pharisees said, we know the Bible, therefore we have life. And Jesus said to them, John 5, 39 to 40, 
You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me. Now, interesting, this passage in contrast to Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, isn't it? Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, life comes from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, we should just be able to have life in the Bible. But then Jesus says, you know the Bible, but you don't have life. How come don't they have life? Because the words of the Bible are supposed to point us to a relationship with Jesus. It's in Jesus that we have life. And someday he's going to come back, and what a day that's going to be. And we're going to see him physically in person, and for all of eternity, we are going to be so overwhelmingly full of joy, never to feel anxiety again, never to feel depression, never to feel down, all those things, because we're going to be with him, because life is in him. It's going to be so amazing. But in the meantime, what are we to do? Well, the primary place we have to meet with Jesus is in here. So why are so many Christians not meeting with Jesus in the Word? They're reading it, and it's dead. And that is because we, many of us have not learned to commune with God in the Word of God. We have not learned to commune with Jesus. We've, we read the Bible like a textbook instead of reading it what I call relationally. We read it as a checklist, like, okay, I know I'm supposed to do it because they always tell us to at church. So I read it again today. I got my 10 minutes. Check it off. Go to work. Back to my stress of life. There is not life in that. Life, but life does come from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If we encounter Jesus in the word of God, you will actually find life. Psalm 16, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Wouldn't you like to feel that? My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Why? Because I met the God that's behind these words when I went to these words. So the question is how... Do we read this thing relationally? I want to finish this message by giving you a few practical tips, and then we're going to have a challenge. Our cell groups, or many of our cell groups, maybe not all of them, but many of our cell groups are going to be doing this together this next month. They're going to be doing a whole focus on exactly this, and I'll tell you why. I almost hesitate to give these practical tips because in our culture, a lot of people think, because I heard the tips, I know the tips, therefore I'm, I'm getting the benefit of the tips, and it's not true. If a weightlifter came up here on stage and talked to you about how he could lift 500 pounds, if you went out from the, the, the sanctuary now thinking you could lift 500 pounds, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it be? Because hearing someone talk about lifting 500 pounds or see, hearing someone talk about running a four-minute mile does not make you, you, you or me, you or me, <laughs> uh, does not make you or me capable of lifting 500 pounds or running a four-minute mile. Isn't that true? In the same way, you can come here and listen to a message, and I can give you all these tips, and you can go, oh, that, those really made sense. Yeah, I like that. And you can go out of here and then wonder a month from now why nothing has changed. I don't have life. And the answer is because you actually have to go and do these things. So we're actually going to do these points that I'm going to put on here. Are, we have to actually work on them, and that's what cell groups are all about. And if you're not in a cell group, I would really highly recommend... And I, I would like it if Ray Yoder could get nothing done this week because so many of you were phoning and emailing him because you wanted to get into cell group, okay? But if you're not in a cell group, this next month in particular, you want to phone him, you want to email the church, whatever, you want to get you in a cell group, you want to work on these things together, this, these very things that I'm talking about. But I want to just give you five uh, quick, very practical tips because we want to read the Bible relationally because actually I really believe this is true because it's in the Bible. Either it's true or it's not true. How many of you believe the Bible is true? So if you believe the Bible is true, that means that life, joy, satisfaction, and peace can be found by meeting Jesus in these words because life comes from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So how are we going to do that? Well, I'm just going to give you a few tips. Number one, 
Uh, start by quieting your soul. Start by quieting your soul. Many of us do not know how to do this, and this is just like the weightlifter analogy. Uh, you have, this is something that must be practiced. It is not something that comes naturally. And I've been growing in this for a couple of years now, but I'll, t- I'll tell you, I'm a routine guy. I love it. And this morning, again, although my routine is a little different now because I'm doing it in a different place in the, in the house now, but I've got a place on the couch that I like to go uh, every morning. Now it's a new couch, but, uh, and I sit in that same place on the couch, basically, and the first five minutes before I do anything, because I don't want to just read this book like a textbook, like a checklist. I want to meet the person behind the words. And so the first thing I do, it's actually now become one of my favorite times of the day I look forward to because life is so busy. Isn't that true that life often just feels so busy? And I'll just give you a little hint. And if you're following the Lord and, and you're going for and stuff, you, one of the things I've realized, I'm, I'm almost 40 now, and I figured out it never gets less slow. Has any of you figured that out? You keep thinking six months from now it's going to slow down. Next year it's going to slow down. In five years, when the kids get through this stage, it's going to slow down. It never slows down. Some of you just want to curl up in a fetal position right now and go, oh my goodness. Don't speak that curse over me, right? Don't speak that curse over me. It's true. It never slows down. So how on earth are you going to make it through a life that continually speeds up and you can feel your insides speeding up? One of the things we need to learn how to do is how to quiet ourselves before we get into the Word. And when you begin to learn to do it, I'm going to guarantee you something you're going to learn to enjoy it. It's actually one of my favorite times of the day. I look forward to that first five minutes and I'll just sit on the couch I'll just take a deep breath, and I'll say, Jesus, I'm so thankful to be here, and I'll, I'll just sit there for five minutes, and if it's a really busy day and I feel stressed, I'll make it 10 minutes. I don't need less, I need more. And I'll just slow myself down, I'll just quiet myself, I'll just take long, deep breaths. Now some of you are sitting there, you're going, his first message is the lead pastor, and he's teaching us the new age, right? Like, this is new age meditation, right, isn't it? No, I didn't get this from the new age, I've never been in the new age, I got this from the Bible. Psalm chapter 46, verse 10. I'll show you a couple of passages. I can show you more. Be still and know that I am God. What does that mean, be still? How about Psalm 131? I have calmed and quieted my soul. Some of us are so afraid of the new age, we've started disobeying the Bible. The devil doesn't get to own breathing and quieting. As of this day, I declare he doesn't get to own it. I'm taking it back from him. And there's some other things I'd like to take back to, which I will not say in my first message as a lead pastor, but <laughs> don't go there. Stop it. Stop it. Don't say it. <laughs> quiet. I'm just quiet. Because it's not a textbook and it's not a checklist. Be still and know that I'm God. There's something about being quiet that is important for knowing God. And then out of the quiet... I just take out my journal, and I just begin to be thankful. Again, I'm a routine guy. If you don't have a routine, it's time for you to get one. Because if you don't have a routine, it means you've got to figure out what you're going to do every single day. So just have a rut. Have a good rut and live in that rut. <laughs> so I just quiet. I don't got to think about it. Five minutes, ten minutes if it's busy. And then it's just Thanksgiving. Oh, Lord, in the quiet, I start to just be thankful. Oh, and there's things you notice that if you're not quiet, you'll never notice. Little things. Oh, Lord, you provided that thought right in the right moment yesterday. That was amazing. And you start to appreciate. In the quiet, you appreciate him. Thank you, Jesus. You know, the Psalms say thanksgiving. We enter his gates with thanksgiving. So I'm just thankful to the Lord. 
And then I, I do something, I've been learning this from Stefan, and I'm getting the most important part, because the most important part is to get into this, there's no question. But the point is, getting your spirit ready to be in this, in an appreciative, quiet, quiet place where it's relational. And, and one of the things I've begun doing, you know what the, the Bible says, Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Have you ever stopped to really think about that? That means every morning. Well, it doesn't even matter, even when you're not in your devotions, that means he's always with you. But when you're in your devotional time in the morning, have you ever stopped to think, he is right there with you. He promised he would never leave you or forsake you. So what would happen if you just intentionally welcomed his presence in? And I'll just talk to him. I'll say, uh, Jesus, where are you right now? And sometimes I'll get a sense like he's maybe sitting beside me, just a, kind of a feeling, I don't know, or he's across the table from me or whatever. Whatever the case is, I know the Bible says he's always, he, he'll never leave me or forsake you. And, and then I'll, I'll say to him, Lord Jesus, how do you see me? And the Bible says that he loves me, that his thoughts about me are more than the sands of the sea. That's all in the Bible. I'm not making this up. So then, I'll, but do you know how many of us we need, when we think about hearing God, lots of us when we think about hearing God, we just think of, I need God to tell me what decision to make about my, with my business. I need God to tell me where I'm going to go to school. We want those kinds of answers. Those are not even the most important answers you need from him. What you and me need from God more than anything else is his affirmation and love. Just to be touched by him and to hear God say to you, I love you and I approve of you and I see what you're doing and have him say, I'm with you. And so I'll just let him right at the beginning. I'll say, Jesus, how do you see me? And you wouldn't believe how many mornings I wake up. I, it seems like my default fault often is to wake up feeling kind of condemned, like I'm falling short here and I'm falling short there. And the Lord will just say to me things like, I see that you're trying hard. I love you. I forgive you. Get up. Keep going. And to hear those little things in your heart, and you need to hear them a thousand times. You need to hear them 10,000 times because our human hearts have been so warped and wounded over the years. We need Jesus, the creator of the universe, to speak into our hearts and affirm us and build us up. And now I'm ready to get to the most important part, and that is his word, because in his word is life. I'm quieted and I'm grateful and now I'm thankful for how he loves me. And now I get into the word, and then I'll spend, you know, 10 or 15 minutes in memorization. Sarah, if you could just put the last two up there. Uh, and then after that, I'll spend whatever I have, 15 or 20 or 30 minutes uh, reading the Bible and journaling and meditating on it. But in all of that, there is life. But it's because I'm now talking with Jesus. As I'm in the Bible, even, I'm writing stuff down. Oh, Jesus, what about this thing? And then I'm reading the Bible, and I'm really stressed about this thing. And what do you think about this? And I'm reading the Bible, meditating, and in all of it, he's speaking to me. And you start to realize this isn't just a devotional checklist. I'm actually meeting with the creator of the universe every morning. And when that relationship with him becomes real, that is life. It's life. When Jesus becomes real to you, and I can't do it for you, hearing your pastor talk to you about how Jesus is real to him is, again, it's like listening to a weightlifter say he can lift 500 pounds. It doesn't make it real for you. You have to go and find out that Jesus will also do this with you. He will walk with each one of you. And his word says that we can find life in his word. Will we persist in it? And will we uh, go for it? And so we just have a, a little challenge for you. And, and so here's a challenge. You can grab a card. Each one of you, there should be a card in a seat right in front of you. So you want to just grab those out right now. Just grab them out, okay? And, and some of you don't like the idea of church where I have to do stuff. So a little caveat. First of all, you don't have to do anything, okay? 
We're glad you came to church today and you can continue to sit here and just listen and not do anything. Your life will never change and that's okay. We still love you, okay? I'll give you a hug in the, in the lobby and I'll bless you and you can complain and this is the worst message you ever heard. But just pull this card out and just humor me for a moment, all right? Um, and so we're gonna do a little church memorization challenge and we're actually gonna do this in, again, most of our cell groups. Some of our cell groups are doing other things and that's fine. But, uh, but our, our, our cell groups, a bunch of our cell groups are going to be going through this together. And they're going to be learning how to listen together and do their devotions and encouraging and all sorts of things. They're going to be focusing on the inner life this month. And then as part of that, we're going we're gonna to memorize some verses together. Now, we've all been watching Pastor Ray, you know, do his messages and recite, you know, a dozen scripture verses every message off by heart. And it's kind of like, wow, that's really neat and powerful when he does it. And now it's time for us to start to store up the word of God in our hearts. Amen? Amen. So now, um, you know, it's interesting to me, even with Jesus, the devil comes to Jesus. You know, there are certain things, if you don't start storing up up the word of God in your heart now, did you know there are some temptations coming down the road that you will have the strength to stand up against because you memorized some scripture verses today? Did Did you know that? Did you notice that when the devil came to Jesus, those were some hard temptations that the devil came to Jesus with. You notice that Jesus didn't say, Oh, could you give me six months? I'm going to go memorize Deuteronomy 8 and I'll get back to you so I can resist you then. Did you do that? The reason you want to start hiding God's word in your heart now is so that you're ready when the time of testing comes. So now we're all different places. So, uh, and this is not about being saved. You don't, Jesus doesn't love you more because you memorize more. But getting the word of God in your heart is part of having life in you when you begin to commune with him. And so we want to do it together. And so we're actually going to count we're not going to know what each person is, is memorizing, but those of you who are in cells, we're going to actually count how many people are memorizing and how many verses were memorized. And at the end of the month, we're going to celebrate that all together because as a church. And wouldn't that be really neat? Can you imagine if, if even every person, if, if even 2,000 people memorized one verse, that would be 2,000 passages of life-giving scripture that are in our hearts. Wouldn't that be amazing? That'd be awesome. And I got a, there's another passage of scripture I got this week. You're like, boy, you get all these passages of scripture. And that is because I spend time with Jesus every morning, pretty much. And I miss sometimes. And he's not mad at me then either. Uh, and he's not mad at you. But it's really awesome to spend time with him. But I got in, in Acts chapter 12, verse 24, is a, it, a story. Everybody's getting persecuted and people are dying. Heads are getting chopped off, these sorts of things. And Herod bursts open and his bowels spill out. And that whole thing. And then verse 24 says this. In the midst of all this stuff that's happening... I love this. But the word of God increased and multiplied. You ever thought about that? It's actually kind of a strange thing to say. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Wait a minute. Did a bunch of Bibles just start popping into existence? The word of God increased and multiplied? Did they actually invent the printing press 2,000 years ago uh, there in, uh, in ancient Israel? No. Okay, what, what does it mean the word of God increased and multiplied? I'll tell you what happened. And was that the purpose of the early church? Absolutely. The word of God. There's life in this thing. The word of God increased. It began to touch more and more and more people. And it was also multiplying. It was going deeper and deeper in their hearts. It was spreading farther. It was going deeper into their hearts. And that is the same thing we want to have happen here at this church. That the word of God would increase and multiply. It would go out. It would go down. It would go further. It would go deeper. But that we would get it in our hearts and we would commune with the God of the universe in his word. Amen? So I want you just to take a moment. And we're going to have the worship team come up in just a a moment. And I'm going to pray for you. Um, But maybe you want to write it down right now. Or maybe you're a person you want to think about it. 
But maybe just make a bit of a goal. So you've seen Pastor Ray memorizing. You've heard us talk about memorizing. Maybe it's time for you to take the plunge. And maybe you're going small. Maybe you're going, and that doesn't matter. Maybe you're going to try two verses this month. Or maybe you're going to try 10 verses. Or maybe you're going to try four or five verses a week or something. I want you to take a a moment right now and just think, Lord, I, I want to get in on this. What if we did it all together as a church? And then maybe you want to take a moment right now, or maybe you want to do it after, but you can do it even right now. You've got a pen and paper, whatever. Uh, when in the week do you plan to memorize? If you don't plan when, it's, it's a useless goal. You're not going to do it. So I'm going to take some time whenever it is, lunchtime. Maybe I'll take 15 minutes at lunchtime or before bed or in the morning or during my devotions and just make a bit of a plan. I'm going to do this together as a church, and the goal is to see the Word of God increase and multiply in our lives and really change our lives. Wouldn't that be awesome? I think it would be awesome. So you can do that right now if you want, and you can finish that after. It doesn't take long. I'm going to do, now I'm going to do something. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get you to stand, and I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to, uh, to help you because we need the Holy Spirit. This is not a work. You don't do this on your own power. You don't have a relationship with Jesus on your own power. So I'm going to get you to stand. I'm just getting ready for the next message already. Bookmarks all falling over the place. What a mess. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us to do this. Amen? Wouldn't you love it? Some of you have struggled with your devotions for years. Wouldn't you love it if the Holy Spirit would give you a touch today and he would actually draw something out of your heart and he would start to make the word come alive and you'd start, he'd start to feel more real in your life? How many of you would like to feel Jesus more in your devotional life and have him ministering to you? If you want that, and again, you don't have to. There's no pressure. If you feel uncomfortable doing this, don't bother. But if you want to, just put your hands out. I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come down on us as a congregation and touch us and change our devotional lives and help us to experience what he promises in his word, life from his word. Holy Spirit, you are a real person and we need your power today. We need your anointing. Your word says that life, true life, does not come from bread alone. It doesn't come from media. It doesn't come from sports. It doesn't come from all the places we seek for it seek it from. True life comes from every word that proceeds from your mouth. I'm praying for every willing heart in this room here this morning that you will anoint us, Holy Spirit, with power, that you will open up our hearts, that your word would begin to come alive, that our devotional times would begin to come alive, that you would transform our inner lives by your power, transforming us into new people, full of the love of Jesus, full of the spirit and power of Jesus. Holy Spirit, that is what we want. Would you fill us this morning? Would you change us? Would you give us life? In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.